a fathom, begin to fathom the depths of, of what that cost or the joy that that will bring to us for all of eternity. Father, um, I just, uh, just thank you for your kindness. I ask for your blessing in these next few moments as, as we study your word together. Uh, Father, I pray that as we talk about some, some hard-hitting truths here, that, um, that they would sift our hearts and that we would be found wanting you more instead of cold and harder towards you more. And so, Father, I just thank you for your kindness. Father, thank you for your revealing yourself to us in your word. Father, let us not take it lightly. Let us not breeze over it. Let us take it for what you want to say to us today. And let it hit us at the depths of our hearts, Father. We give you the praise for that, Father. Um, let your word speak. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go with me to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. We are uh, continuing on in our series um, through the book of Luke. Um, and I hope you guys are enjoying uh, some of these new songs. I know there's lots of like, uh, like even one song this morning was Amazing Grace. It was, it was new, um, but yet... F- not new, so it was a little bit of a different rendition, um, but particularly we're doing some new songs like this song uh, was written um, from a, for an album called, for specifically the book of Luke, um, and uh, some of you guys are familiar, we post things often from a, a website called the Gospel Coalition, uh, and for the Gospel Coalition, uh, they uh, preached through the book of Luke uh, at this conference, and basically the Gospel Coalition is just a group of churches, uh, reformed churches with, with like-minded theology, and, um, but not necessarily a denomination. And so they came together this past uh, uh, spring. Uh, I was able to go to their conference, and at the conference, they, the, all the speakers preached the book of Luke. And for that conference, they wrote um, an album, basically across the country, different musicians submitted songs written from the book of Luke to, uh, to compile this album. And so we've been able to benefit from some of those writings, some of those music, and and the prodigal is one of those songs, deep, rich, theological truth that is put to work, to, to, to song uh, for us to sing. And so, um, even let me encourage you, even as we do new songs, that you uh, uh, don't let the comfort of knowing a song be your idol in the moment. Um, but let the freshness of the truth of a song that maybe you're not so familiar with um, hit you maybe in a little bit of a different way, and let it not be about your comfort in knowing the song, but be about the truths of God and this world that are being proclaimed. Uh, and so, um, as we do that, let's begin Luke chapter 8. Um, we're going to try to get through this in a timely fashion as we do every week, but uh, if you have your Bibles, go with me to Luke chapter 8. We're going to work through the whole passage, or the whole, uh, sorry, the whole uh, chapter today, and we're just going to get, we're just going to start off Luke chapter 8, verse 1, no introduction. Soon afterward, this is where he begins. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Of course, this is Christ. And the twelve were with him, and also were some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household, 
manager, and Susanna, and many others who had provided for them out of their means. All right, let's stop right there. We're gonna, again, we're just going to read a little bit, work through the text, read a little bit, work through it. Uh, first of all, Jesus, I mean, this is, this is just what Jesus did, right? He, he went through villages. He, he went about proclaiming, particularly, the, the good news, the good news of the kingdom of God. And we spent like nine weeks going through tracing the theme of gospel and kingdom throughout all of Scripture. Uh, and so we, we talked about in that series about how gospel, how the kingdom of God looks like God's people in God's place underneath God's rule. And so this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is bringing about, Jesus is literally bringing about this God's people underneath God's rule in God's place. He's, so we see the new creation beginning to take place as... as um, as Jesus is healing people, and we see people beginning to place their faith in Jesus, so then we see this submission taking place to God, and, and we start to see this being, but that's what Jesus is going about. He's going about bringing about the kingdom. Um, Jesus is coming and tr- seeing lives transformed as he's transforming them himself, both physically and spiritually, and these transformed lives are just the beginning of this kingdom that he is beginning to bring about. You know, I want to encourage us, as we think about this kingdom that Christ is bringing about, this is just kind of a quick side note, that uh, I think it's, it's crucial for us to, to, first of all, know what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like or what it looks like. And, uh, and then what does our kingdom look like around us? What does the kingdom of our friends look like? And wherever they don't line up, uh, is where the gospel needs to be inserted. Uh, it's where the gospel needs to bring about transformation in their lives. So, for instance, I, my marriage doesn't look like the marriage should look like in the kingdom. So, how does the gospel speak to my marriage? Um, and uh, not that the other areas that we have figured out doesn't need the gospel, but that gives us a great context, particularly when we're speaking to someone who's not a believer. How does the gospel transform their life? Um, now, ultimately, they'll discover that, and you should lead them to discover that, that gospel, that they, there's a repentance and a redemption that has to take place. I don't want to forsake that. But how does the gospel speak to that? So this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is going, bringing about his kingdom. Um, and as Jesus went about, so it's just a quick note on that, but as Jesus went about, he, he traveled with disciples. I mean, some of this is review. But it was quite common during this time for a rabbi to have disciples with them. This was not unheard of. They... They, they would have traveled, these disciples would have been with him, they would have learned, they would have studied, they would ask questions. But what was uncommon was for Jesus to have women as disciples following him. As a rabbi, that would have been unheard of. That would not have been commonplace. So this is, this is quite unusual. This is something that would draw bad and good attention to Christ as he continued throughout his ministry. Uh, it's interesting, as you study, he even gave women a prominent role. Uh, like, even him putting value on healing women was a big deal like showing their value and their worth this is very different than the culture that they would have had women were not taken care of well in that sense and they were not thought really um real highly of this was they were not taken care of so for them to be his disciples this is like mind-blowing for many of them in their culture um it's interesting, in the text, Jesus was even partially supported by women. His ministry was. Now, it was very common for the disciples who followed a teacher 
for like who followed a rabbi, it's very common for them to support the rabbi, to take care of the rabbi, to to pay, to to care for his physical needs and and those kind of things. And it's similar to today, but um, this was during this time though for women to be supporting was was just not common. Um, and I just want to comment that I think it's awesome for these kinds of women that we see here listed in Luke. These kind of women who who are genuinely pursuing Christ. Women who sacrifice their lives to know Jesus and to teach Jesus. Women who are faithful to study the Word and know it well. I mean, these are women who are following, wanting to be disciples of Christ. Um, and I pray that God raises up similar women today, uh, even in this church. Um, but as we come to this point in Luke, I think we get to what's what we're going to call like the early years of Luke. Uh, of, I'm sorry, of Jesus' ministry. And as, as we close out today, we'll be, I think, towards the end, uh, or at the end of Jesus' early years in ministry. And as we look at the rest of this text, I think Jesus' overall is telling his disciples in the remaining part of the text. He's telling his disciples two things. One is to listen to me carefully. And the second is to watch me closely. Listen to me carefully and to watch me closely. The first one, listen to me carefully, I think is verses 4 through 21. And watch me closely is 22 through 56 or through the remainder of the chapter. But listen to me carefully. I think it's kind of the overall theme, if you will, of this, of this passage that Jesus is portraying to his disciples. The first thing Jesus says uh, that I think that we see here is that Jesus instructs us to listen with perseverance. He instructs us to listen with perseverance. You know, I heard a, uh, a speaker one time talk about listening. Uh, and you know, we always ask that question, like, are you listening to me? Has anybody asked that, like, to your spouse? Are you listening to me? Like, right? Like, see if you're... If, you, if, if you're like me, you talk a whole lot, and then you wonder, like, is she humoring me, or is she just, you know, so I've just gotten to the point where I'm okay with humoring, and so uh, I just say, will you please humor me for the next five or 50 minutes, and, uh, and so then there's no way out, like, she has to at least humor me, uh, but as we think about listening, like, we are always listening to something, like, we are listening. So I think it's important. Jesus is telling us to listen to him carefully, and he instructs us to listen with perseverance. So let's read chapter 8, verse 4 through 15. And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it, and some fell on the rock, and as it grew, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when the disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables, so that... Seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Hmm. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. And the ones along the path are those who have heard. 
Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. Now clearly, as we've seen working through the book of Luke, um, like we're flying at a pretty high altitude over the text. Uh, there's a lot to teach just in this parable alone, and lots of implications and application for us. But we're going to kind of zero in on one particular thing in this passage as we kind of work through it, trying to get an overview of this passage. So first of all, we talked about the parable of the sower. His disciples then ask him what, what he means. And, and I think the, the story is pretty clear. I mean, Jesus takes the time to explain what this parable means. So I don't think uh, I'm going to take the time to explain all the ins and outs of the parable, but I want to zero us in on something very particular that Jesus says in this passage. In Luke chapter 8, verse 10, he said this, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for the others they are in parables, so that... Seeing, they may not see. And hearing, they may not understand. Well, what in the world is Jesus talking about? Like, that's a, I don't know about you, but like, that's a little like, okay, what, what, does he, what does he mean? Well, a couple observations real quick. Secrets. He talks about the secrets of the kingdom. These are the truths of, about God, God's kingdom, that were beyond hu- human wisdom and in and of its, beyond human wisdom and of itself to figure out. So this is secrets that we could not attain ourselves, but God has revealed them to us. Those truths have been revealed by God. But I think it's the rest of the verse that's particularly confusing. He says, in look at verse 10, he says, Seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. I think Jesus is quoting here from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. We don't have time to go there this morning, but Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9 talks about God's judicial blinding, like as the judge blinding uh, unbelievers. You go, whoa, 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 like that's weird. God blinding unbelievers. What are we talking about here? So Jesus' purpose in the parables are intended to both reveal and conceal. So the sense in which God's Jesus' purpose in speaking in parables is to reveal to some, but to conceal to others. They're intended to reveal truth to those who have faith. Those who have faith in Christ, the faith in God, they're intended, for them it's intended to be understood and to be transformational. So for those in this room who have faith in Christ, the parables are meant to be revealed to us, to be transformational, to be understood. But to those who do not have faith, they're intended to remain as secrets. And Paul mentions a little bit of this in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able, able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now notice how Jesus had revealed himself thus far. Now you have to kind of step back, take a little bit of a big picture look at Luke so far. When he was outside of the Jewish population, 
he would call himself or allow himself to be called the Messiah. We see that even in this very chapter, Christ allows himself to be called Messiah. When he's around the Jewish nation, though, he would not refer to him as the Messiah. There's, there's not an example of it. He did not do that. He even told people, if you notice, he even told people in those contexts not to say anything. Don't, don't go tell anybody this. Instead, what I think we see Jesus doing when he's among the Jewish nation is acting and defining visually what the Messiah was to be. I mean, think about this. If he would have called himself the Messiah around the Jewish nation, think about the false expectations that would have come about. Now, they were expecting a Messiah that would come, establish his earthly kingdom, and, and bring judgment to those. And, and that's not what Jesus is doing yet. That will come. But if he would have pronounced, I think, among the Jewish nation, that I'm the Messiah, this would have brought about some different expectations. But instead, around the, the Gentiles, people who did not have these same expectations, he revealed, even in this very chapter, that he was okay with pronouncing that he is the Messiah. Um, I think it would have made, on a practical note, would have made it very hard for Jesus among the Jewish nation to proclaim the kingdom when they had these other expectations of a different kingdom. So here Jesus is saying in this passage, when we talk about the parables, he's saying that the truth about God is going out. Like the word of God, the kingdom of God, the truth is going out. But this is Jesus' point. When the word goes out, it goes out with a risk to those who hear it. The word of God goes out with a risk to those who hear it. It has power, and it sifts its hearers. And that's the point when Jesus, when we, particularly we get here to verse 10, that these parables, that this, this word, the word in general, has power, and it sifts. And I just want to point out to us that hearing a sermon may be a little more risky than you previously imagined. Hearing the word of God proclaimed might be a little more risky than you had previously imagined. See, I think we have, particularly in our culture today, we have this idea that we can sit and hear the word of God passively. Like we can just sit there and just, just kind of let it roll across our minds. But, I don't think that that's what Jesus is teaching. I don't think we can sit and hear the Word of God passively. Something is happening. Something inside of us is happening. In sermons where the Word of God is expounded, not just the preacher has good words to say, but where the Word of God is taught, by the sovereignty of God, those words are intended for everyone. Like, so when the Word of God is brought before you, God intends those words for you wherever you're at in life. Now, it may have different applications. It may, may impact you in a little bit different way, but uh, I'm not saying interpret it in a different way, but impacting, ap- applied. But it's when the words of God are taught, they sift. And we cannot be passive. And the words of God is what we need to hear and what we need to interact with. Like these are, when God is speaking and His words are being taught, we can't sit there passively. Because here's the deal, you will either walk away when you hear the words of God, when you read the words of God, you will either walk away softened towards God or you will walk away more hardened 
towards God. You'll either walk away with, with loving God more, or you'll walk away knowing how better to hear the words and not respond. And then that just compounds and compounds and compounds. And so, I just want to warn you that as we sit here and listen, even this very moment, that our hearts, by the Word of God, are either being softened or there are be, it is being hardened. I think this is what the parable is teaching. Jesus is not talking about people outside the church. He's describing in this parable people who have heard the Word. I think there's the people that, are, that hear sermons, much like today, or, or read the Word of God, much like today. But look closely. Three out of four do not hear and believe in such a way that it's genuine. Now, I don't think it's meant to give us a, a statistic there for you statistic people. I don't think he means three out of four people that hear the word, you know. But three out of four in this context, the point is, I think, is not that it's three out of four. The point is that they hear and believe in such a way that it's not genuine. They hear in such a way that perseverance does not last. And remember, the test, a test of genuine faith is perseverance. We've talked about this many times before here. That's why the whole eternal security phrase kind of is misleading sometimes because that, it's tend to be, that tends to be tagged with, I can, once I'm redeemed, I can do whatever I want to do. But instead, the Bible teaches more. It's, it's about persevering in that faith. It's about working out that faith. And so the test of genuine faith, and not, we're talking, not, not talking about earning our salvation, but as a result of our justification, then our sanctification takes place. Like, that happens. So when we persevere through that, we should persevere through that. I, w- I listened to a sermon back at Together for the Gospel the last time they were in Louisville, the conference. And John Piper preached a sermon where he, the title of the sermon basically was, I'm surprised, or the point was, I'm surprised I'm still a Christian. Uh, now, I mean, that's like, uh, yeah, I, that's just a crazy thing, even to think of Piper saying that. I mean, the man loves God, knows God. Uh, I, I would love to know God a hundredth of what he knows of God. But, uh, but he's talking about his perseverance in the faith. I'm surprised. It's only by the power of God that I have persevered in the faith and but so the genuine test of or the faith the test of genuine faith is perseverance and and we cannot when we sit and hear the word of God we cannot sit there neutral you'll either be pushed towards God or you'll be pushed away from God and and the thing is the away from God practically typically looks probably pretty slow like gradual and, uh, and we just kind of sit there, and we just kind of go through the motions, and we hear the Word of God, and then we don't do anything about it. We hear the Word of God, we don't do anything about it, and then all of a sudden, we find ourselves far from God, deep in sin, and we wonder, how did I get there? And we don't realize that our hearts are either being softened or being hardened. Um, so, let's continue on in that verse, and we're going to tie a few things back together here. And the ones, look at 8.13, he says, And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. Note here that their belief lasts for a while. That there is no perseverance. Like it comes, and then it's gone. And again, the mark of true Christian faith is perseverance. This is perseverance ultimately in our faith in Jesus Christ. 
But let us be reminded that this is practically played out in perseverance to the task that God has called us to. This is perseverance in the life and the ministry and the, and the role that God's called us to in this life. And all of that done in faith in God. You know, for example, I, you know, for us, uh, those of you who have been members here for a while, this has been a bit of a challenging year for our body. Uh, and some have persevered and some have not. And, uh, but it is God's kindness for those of us who have persevered. Um, so in this text, he says they believe, but, but only for a while. I just want to remind us that we're not sitting here passively. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I think the point of this parable is meant to show you and your need for a Savior, your need for redemption. You cannot just sit neutral there. Your heart is either being softened towards God or being hardened. Your perceived neutrality is in actuality a rejection of the reality of Christ. So we, just, we can't just sit there. In reality, our sitting there is a rejection. Our neutrality is a rejection of Jesus Christ if we're not a follower of Him. And the parable, I think, is meant to wake us up to we, we need Him. And if you're a follower of Jesus, the parable is meant to wake you up. I mean, consider the time of testing that He says comes along. I mean, understand that any of us, you've been a Christian for 10 years, you could be the one among the rocks. You could be the one that fell among the thorns. And I think that's, I, I'm not trying to scare us, but perseverance is crucial. And when we hear the Word of God, something is happening. You know, if he gets to verse, verse 13, he's talking about falling prey to traps and times of testing. You know, I, I would just ask us a couple uh, easy questions. You know, what, what are your traps? What are the traps where, this, where Satan could come along and, and steal you away and your perseverance would be lost? What, where would, what are your traps? Is it success? Is it satisfaction in something other than God? Is your trap always having to be pleased? Is it always about your comfort? Is that your trap? That's about your lack of stress? Is it a desire for wealth? I just want to encourage us. A dangerous place to be is not aggressively attacking sin with no one intimately involved in your life speaking to the sin that you can't see. This is a very dangerous place to be. But the parable is intended to help us evaluate ourselves those of us who are Jesus followers, how, how, how do we know, then I think we have to ask the question, how do we know, like when we look, when, when we hear the word of God and then we evaluate like, I heard it, but now am I responding to the word of God in genuine faith? How do I know? How do I, how do I know that I'm responding in genuine faith? And I, and I think that would come from knowing the fruits of the Spirit. The, the fruit the, or the fruit of the spirit. Jonathan Edwards argued that that the, it shouldn't be like well you can have lots of joy. So the fruit of the spirit, patience, uh, love, joy, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control, forbearance, peace, love. Jonathan Edwards, uh, Puritan or uh, sorry, uh, he wasn't a Puritan. Uh, oh preacher, we'll leave it at that. Uh, from a long time ago, uh, argued that. Um, 
that the fruit of the Spirit should be seen more as a collective passage. That should, instead of be fruits of the Spirit, uh, that basically argued that you're not going to have joy unless you have peace, and you're not going to have kindness unless you have goodness, and you're not going to have faithfulness unless there's self-control. And, and so you'd say that these are all one big package, and I think that that's uh, potentially helpful, I think, as we see this. So the question would be, how do I know that I'm responding to the Word of God? And the question, I think, would be, are you growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Are you more gentle today than you were three weeks ago? Are you more kind today? Is there more love and joy? Is there more peace? Is there more self-control? I mean, these are all the results of the Spirit at work in our life. Is this happening? Do you want to know if you're being softened by the Word of God today? Are the fruits increasing or are they decreasing? You will persevere in these fruits. And, 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 and I think we have to be cautioned towards momentary sprints of, of enthusiasm in our religious affections. So as we love God, like some of us just have these like little like shoots, like, ah, yeah, this is great. And then like for the next like four months, you know, our, our faith and joy and love and God is like down here. And then um, are, are we persevering? Are, are the fruits growing in our life? I think that's a good key for helping us understand, are we listening with perseverance? And I'm not talking about just being a better person. I don't think the fruit of the Spirit is not, though I'm just being a better moral person. No, it's my joy. Is my joy growing? Well, if it's the Spirit and it's joy, it's not joy growing in your job. It's joy growing in God. The Spirit's going to lead us to find joy in God, um, to find our gentleness as we see that from God not just being a better person. So we must move on. We must hear with perseverance. The second thing Jesus instructs us to do is to hear with understanding. Hear with understanding. 16 through 18, he says, No one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Once again, what is, what is he talking about here? So I think the point of the story here, the point of the light, is not look, but is listen. All right, so you know, we got that song, hide, a light, hide it under a bushel. no. I'm going to let it shine, right? You know what I'm talking about? That's not the point of this passage, right? Uh, I don't think it's, it's, it's not about, I'm going to let my light shine to the world, like city on a hill. I don't think that's the point of the passage here. The point of the passage here is the light is referring to the Word of God. Jesus' point is that it's crazy for you to hide a lamp that you've just lit. Like, who would do that? Like, you just went, you got a candle, you put it, and then you kind of like put it in like a closet, that you're never going to enter into. Like, what's the point? There's, there's no point to it. It's not doing what it was meant to do. The point here is to show us the point of God's Word. What is the point of God's Word? See, I think for many of us, we think the point of God's Word is just kind of this religious thing that we kind of engage in every once in a while. 
No, the point of God's word is to be disclosed and to be heard. It's for us to read it, to know it. The point is not for it to be there for us to go, wow, this is confusing. Man, I better leave this up for other people to like figure out. And no, no, the point is for us to for it to be disclosed to us, for those who have faith, for those who have eyes for the word, who have, have are been redeemed by God. The point is for it to be disclosed to us, to be heard. What is in God's word is meant to be made known. We're to teach his word. We're to understand and accept his word. God has not given us the light of his word so that we would cover it up by our unresponsiveness or to cover it up by our sinfulness or our lack of care. Like the point of the word is to be revealed to us, for us to know it. So then we get into this idea of like this compounding effect. So he says in verse 18, he says, Take care then how you hear. Take care how you hear. I mean, I think that speaks enough for itself, but he's basically saying consider carefully how you listen. Now, I want to ask, like, like, you know, nobody has to raise their hand, but has anybody in here this morning considered carefully their listening? So if we're speaking the Word of God and reading the Word of God, are you considering carefully how you listen? When you read the Word of God throughout the week, are you just reading it to read, or are you considering carefully how you listen, how you hear it? He says it's to take care, to take care how you hear. Because realize we should increasingly understand God's Word. Now, it may take effort and study, but we should be increased. So take care how we hear. He goes on in verse 18. For to the one who has, more will be given and for the one who has not, even what he thinks he has, will be taken away. So for the one, if you look at that, for the one who has, I think what Jesus is referring to here is the one who has faith, when he hears the word, more will be given. But the one who does not have faith, even when he thinks that he, even what he thinks he has, will be taken away. I think there's a compounding effect of obedience and wisdom as it increases in your life. Just as there is a continuing compounding effect of sin and folly. So we're to be growing in Christ. We're to be continuing to understand Him more as we understand His Word more as we pursue by faith. So, think what, very clearly what he's saying here, that those who, who are responding to the Word in faith, who have faith in the Gospel... More will be given. More understanding will be given. More, more truth of God will be given. But for those who are just reading, who are not taking care of how they're hearing, who, who are not responding to faith, this, even this, even what he thinks he has, will be taken away. Now remember, understand, this is coming right off the heel of the parable of the sower. Actually, it might be better titled the parable of the soils. So, you know, think about that. In your, in your life, is there a compounding effect of wisdom and obedience to God? Or is there a compounding effect of sin and folly? Because to the one who has not the faith, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. So we must listen with perseverance. We must listen 
or to hear with, Jesus instructs us to hear with understanding, to take care to what we hear. And I hope that encourages you, both as you study this week in the Word of God and as you come prepared for next week. That's part of why we do the uh, Renovate Us uh, thing. That's where we post online just some questions, what passage to read through, and questions to prepare for Sunday morning. That's to help you take care, like to, to give attention to what you're going to be learning. The third thing, Jesus instructs us to hear with obedience. He instructs us to hear with obedience. Verse 19. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So we have Jesus, I think, talking, first of all, in the nature of family. Jesus was not rejecting his physical family. I don't, I don't think you can, I think that's stretching the text too far to say that he is rejecting his physical family. But instead, Jesus was revealing how important his spiritual family was at this point and, and for the life of a believer. And he gives no regard here for affinity. Like, this is how important your, your spiritual group is, you know, and, and how value you should give to it because of its similarities. But instead, it's a reference to the value of his spiritual family. And then he goes on and gives us this challenge, I think, at the end of verse 21, to hear God's word and to do it. To hear God's word and do it. Jesus is saying that his family members hear and then put into practice. Like they, they, they do it. I mean, many of us have come accustomed to hearing lots of biblical truth and then doing nothing about it. Again, what's happening there? A hardening is taking place. There's a sifting going on. A hardening is a result. Jesus is saying that his family of hearers and doers is his close family. Those are the ones who follow. That, that, that is his spiritual family. Those are the ones who hear the word and they, and they do the word. And so to talk about doers of the word as we are families, as we are family members, uh, and we've talked about this before in Romans 12 and stuff, we, we're very, in a very real sense, we're, we're a family. Um. He's talking about our spiritual family is of, of utmost importance. Like, that relationship that we have. And yet our culture, like, if you talk about the idea of, like, spiritual family being more important than physical family, like, um, that's going to be rough. Like, someone's going to give you a real hard time for that. So I don't think Jesus, is, though, is saying here that we neglect our physical family, or that his intention was to neglect his physical family. No, I think it's the reality of the eternality of our spiritual family. And that we can connect at a much deeper level and commune as a spiritual family at a much deeper level than we can at a physical level. Or, I'm sorry, at a much deeper level than at, because of our communion with God than we can at a physical level. So, Jesus is just speaking to the reality of that. So, as, as we think about this family, you know, I think you need to ask questions of how do we, do we act like brothers and sisters? Do we, 
Are we have, do we have commitment to the welfare of each other? Or are we disengaged? Or do, do you care about the body? Do you consider what is best for the family? I think these are all things that Jesus would be concerned about. Do we have concern for the body, for our spiritual family? Is that of great value to us? So in the first half so far, we've heard three stories. One about perseverance, one about obedience, and one about understanding. All those Jesus is saying, listen closely. Hear me closely. So listen carefully, like with, with perseverance. Listen carefully with understanding. Listen carefully with obedience. These are all huge, very important things. <laughs> very important things. That, then, next, Jesus tells us to watch Jesus closely. I think the second part of the passage, the idea here is to watch Jesus closely. We will find that Jesus first here is Lord of the natural world. We find that Jesus is Lord of the natural world. Luke 8, verse 22 through 25. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling, I'm sorry, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went out and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? So then Jesus asks, right? Right there, where is your faith? And this is the way I commonly hear this passage preached. And it's basically the point that commonly hears preached is don't you know you are with me? I'm Jesus. I've got your back. Like, don't, don't fear the storm. It's me. I got this. I think Jesus, what he's doing here is questioning their understanding of who he is. Not of what he can do, but questioning the understanding of who he is. Because think about it, they've been with Jesus. They should know who Jesus is. They've been walking with him. I think the question is, do, is, is a matter of understanding who Jesus is. Saying, why are you surprised at this? Do you not realize who I am? I mean, they were his disciples. They should have not been surprised at what Jesus did and called him. I mean, think about it. They've already seen him do this far. They've seen him raise people from the dead. And then a storm comes, and he calms the storm, and they go, whoa, who is this? Oh. I think Jesus, is, his questioning the faith is not, could he do the storm, but your question of, of, are they, where is your faith in me and who I am? Not your faith in the fact that I can calm storms. I don't think that's what Jesus is questioning here. I think he's questioning, who am I? You don't know who I am. Do you guys understand the difference there? I don't think he's, his point is, where's your faith? Like, you should know that I can calm the storms. It's, where's your faith in me? And that's what we continue, I think, to see through this book of Luke period, and particularly in this chapter. 
Think about this in your, think about this in your daily life. If Jesus is Lord over the natural world, then why are you surprised when the ship heads either direction? Like, when the ship of your life heads down a good road or a bad road, why, but why don't we trust? Jesus, though, is the object of our faith, and He's the one that we trust. So I would encourage us to trust in Him and, and who He is, not just what He can do. Think about the scenario that Jesus brought about here. I mean, think about, think about the, uh, you know, just speculation. I think Jesus did this on purpose. I think maybe the Holy Spirit, again, speculation. I think Jesus knew or maybe had been enlightened by the Holy Spirit. Something's going to happen. So he's like, dude, I'm going to go take a nap. Because then, then think about what happens, right? Think, and, and, but before we do that, Isaiah 51. If you want to go read that this week. God is seen as the one who dried up the sea and as the one who's Lord of the wind. So I think Jesus, by God's grace and God's leading his life, was bringing about a situation in which Jesus would be seen as God of the wind and God of the sea. Not just of one who can take care of dangerous times in our life. Like the anchor holes, you ever heard that song, Ray Bolts? Right? Like, he's, it's more than that. Like, yes, the anchor does hold, but why? Why does the anchor hold? Because he's God. That's why the anchor holds. A lot of times our anchors don't ever hold. Because we don't know it's God. We just think it's just some little part of God. We don't understand what's where, with the foundation or the reason why it holds. Why does, the, why does God, why can Jesus calm the storm here? Because he's God. Because he has all the power in the world at his beckoning. Why should you not fear the storm? It's not just because Jesus is with you. It's because he's God. And he directs the storm. Every ounce of rain that falls on your head is from the hand of God. He controls it. Why do we fear? Ultimately, I think it's oftentimes because we don't realize that it's God. We don't trust that it's God. So Isaiah 51, God is seen as the one who dried up the sea, and he's Lord of the wind, and Jesus here is displaying himself as the one who controls the wind. I think he was presenting himself to disciples as God. I don't think the text is mainly about trusting in Jesus through the storms, but it's about trusting in who Jesus is. As God, the Redeemer, the Savior of the world. So, Understand the power of God over circumstances in your life as a demonstration of His power and His love. And so clearly, you know, the safety of the disciples was not Jesus' ultimate goal in calming the sea. I think the safety of Jesus' disciples at this point was ultimately to help them understand who He was. That His actions were to help bring about faith in the disciples' lives to bring about where they would look at Jesus and go, we know who he is. I have faith in him. Not just then what he can do. So let's be a church who believes that God is Lord over the natural realm. And secondly, 
we see Jesus also reveals himself as the Lord of the spiritual realm. The Lord of the spiritual realm. 26 through 39. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasians, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you done? What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of, of the surrounding country of the Gerasians asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So Jesus here is met by a demon-possessed man. It's interesting that the demons immediately recognize him as son of the Most High God. The demons recognized him. Now, a question, why, why did he not silence the demons? Something to think about. I think it's because he was in a Gentile area. I think he did not silence them when they called out who he was. I mean, if, if culturally, Jesus is not in a Jewish area any longer. He's in a Gentile area. There's no distorted expectations of his Messiahship. The demons though, another note, had been exercising their character in torturing this man. I mean, there was a serious spiritual problem in this man's life. The demon's name was, was Legion, indicating many, many demons. Notice, they begged him repeatedly not to make them enter into the abyss. Literally, the abyss here meaning unending doom and hell. Unending doom and hell. How, how did they know about the abyss? Speculation, maybe because they were familiar with it. Maybe they're from there. Maybe they just understood what it was to be. But their fear of not going back was not casual. It was great fear. Fear, fear really of those who had probably had came from something like that. But Jesus caused the demons to beg not to be sent back there. And I think, if we look at the demons here, the more we understand the horror of that which we deserve, 
the more we will be moved to testify to the good that God has done in our lives. The more we understand what we deserve, the more we understand the good of God and what He has done in our lives. The more we will see His grace, kindness, and mercy. He has loved us so tenderly. Last thing we see, Jesus is Lord of life and death. And we'll stand. 40 through 56. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named uh, Jairus, or Jairus, who was ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. Immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you, are surrounding you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she was trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, <laughs> daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the, and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So first of all, we have the woman bleeding. As he was journeying, I was lots of things. I mean, the woman bleeding, like she, she would have been a social outcast, a number of things we know about there. But as he was journeying, he was touched by this woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. And after seeing Jesus and having faith in him, she reached out and touched his garment. And Jesus calls her out, not because he didn't know who it was, but because he wanted her to identify herself. He wanted to publicize the woman's faith. Again, because what's it about? It's about faith in who Jesus is. That's what the, that's what the Gospel of Luke is testifying to. It's not just what Jesus can do, but what, who Jesus is. His actions display who he is. And so here... It's the same thing. It's, he's publicizing this woman's faith. So then he turns around and says, your faith. It's just kind of astounding that Jesus calls her daughter. Daughter. Why, why, who, who are the daughters and sons of God? Those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Not just faith in that God is powerful enough to do cool things. Like There's lots of people who believe that. But faith in who he is. She has faith in who he is. Jesus publicizes that. So, I think Jesus here is, at the very least, giving a faith lesson. When Jairus is present, Jairus is present, Jesus is saying, 
don't believe, talking about his daughter now who's dead at home. He says, don't believe. I don't think Jesus' point is, don't, like, don't believe that I can heal her. Believe in me. Like, this will be okay. Believe in me. So, as we move on to Jairus' and his daughter, Jesus used this occasion to show more clearly who he was. And, and, and if we go back into the passage, see, he says, uh, what do you say in verse 50? But, Jer- but uh, Jesus, on hearing this, answered him. He's talking about his daughter dead. Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. I don't think this is a, this is, I don't think this is a name it, claim it passage. This is not a, well, just rebuke that financial struggle in your life, and you'll be okay. Or, or just have enough faith in Jesus. I mean, I, I heard a pastor one time say that, well, your relative, it wasn't my relative, it was someone else. This was the counsel the pastor gave us, that well, your relative died of cancer because you didn't have enough faith. Like, that's, that's not what Jesus is teaching here. It's not, a, it's not that. It's not you have enough faith and you can have whatever you want. Um, it's also not licensed to just rebuke something in the name of Jesus because what if God doesn't want to take that away? But instead praying His will. What if God intends for your finances to not be sufficient enough for you to worship it as an idol? What if His intent for you is to realize that, that it will let you down? Um, I had a buddy, a pastor, friend of mine out in Brookville, and uh, they were looking at buying, or not buying, but renting a new facility, and, and the finance guy says, well, we don't have enough money for that. And someone says, well, I'm just going to rebuke that. Well, what if God doesn't have enough money for it? Then we just bared false witness against God. Like, what, what if they, they really don't have enough money for that? Like, that's okay. God just has a different plan for them. He's not any less God because he didn't provide for them to have this item here. So Jesus is not saying, believe in me and you can have this. It's a, it's a matter of placing our faith in him. And then ultimately what that's going to result in from the broader context of Scripture is that it's, we're going to be okay with whatever He has in store for us. We know from earlier on in Luke that Jesus' plan is not always to heal. Sometimes He doesn't do it. So, Jesus here says, believe in me. And then He goes to her house and heals her. So, a couple concluding thoughts for us today. Whatever you're facing, are you trusting in God? Are you trusting in Christ? Trusting in who He is? Like knowing the depth of who He is. And that means we have to study the Word to know who He is as He's been revealed in His Word. That's what we've seen so far. We've seen so far today that He is Lord of the natural realm. He is Lord of the spiritual realm. So, like... When it comes to whatever struggle is spiritual or physical, we can trust Him. Why? Because He's God over that. And then when we understand who God is and His attributes and all-powerful and all-sovereign and in control of everything, then we go, okay, so that's the character of God, and I know that He's Lord over all of these circumstances, so how then do I live in light of that? How do I live knowing that He's in control of all of these things? I heard a preacher say one time, you know, God is great so that I don't have to be in control. It's when we have to be in control that, that we tend to fail. But whatever you're facing, trust God. He's worthy 
He's a worthy guide. He's worthy of being trusted. Cast your life on Christ. Jesus, Jesus now saves this little girl. Um, he didn't have to. But he does it to show who he is. So far, Jesus has shown himself to be the Savior, the healer, the restorer of life. We've seen all this in Luke so far. How kind Jesus is to care for unlikely people like the Gentiles. This Jewish little girl, the unclean Jewish woman, the social outcast. And God cares for them. Recognize Jesus, who He is, or what He says, and what He does. Not by the baggage that we've attached to Him, or who we think He should be. Right? I mean, that's, that's, we've talked about it before, it's called eisegeting the text. Like, we're taking our thoughts and imposing them on the text and saying, well, I want Jesus to look this way. And so when I read the Word of God, I'm going to bring things in to support that Him looking that way. Instead, let Him speak for Himself. Who does His Word say that He is? Listen to what He says. And then He tells us here that our response should be in faith. That's going to involve repentance and obedience, which then should compound into further repentance and obedience, which should compound into greater faith and repentance and obedience and further perseverance and more fruit of the Spirit in our lives. You know, turning your hopes in other things into Christ, the one who commands the seas. And he tells us to listen with perseverance, to be careful how we listen. That the word, that as we sit and hear the word or we sit and read the word, that we don't do that neutrally or passively. We're moving in one direction or the other. And beg God to, to, to give you perseverance, that you would not be the seed that fell among the bad soil, that you were a seed that fell on the good soil. And God is bringing about the perseverance in your life. So I encourage you guys to do that. I want to pray for us. And, uh, and uh, let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for um, uh, this time. Thank you for your word. Father, I know that um, it is easy to just sit and hear the word. And Father, I just, even this moment, I want to encourage us, though, that it's not about our efforts, but it's about where our faith is placed. Sometimes there are going to be these times where we go to hear the word and, and maybe we're just tired We've got something else on our mind. But Father, I just pray that we would recognize, though, that even in those moments, what does our heart yearn for? Does our heart yearn to know you more? Or does our heart yearn to just get on with life and whatever else we have planned? Father, that's the sign of a heart that's going to move towards hardness versus a heart that is moving towards softness and dependence on you. And Father, I pray that we would, as we seek to listen or read the word, that we would do it uh, in faith, and that we would do it taking care of how we do it. 
that we would not just approach the word lightly or flippantly, but we'd do with intention and even expectation. Um, and so, Father, I pray as we, as we sing in these next few moments, as we reflect, Father, let the word pierce our heart and speak to us. And Father, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Would you guys stand with us as we sing?